mitzvot is. Now we're going to get no five. What is the purpose of mitzvot? People are affected by their own actions, their minds and their thoughts follow the actions that they do, whether good or evil. Even people whose minds are totally evil, and every plan devised by their minds is nothing but evil all the time. Should their spirit be moved, and should they put all their effort consistently into Torah and Mitzvot, even not for the proper reason. You take somebody who's a bad person, inherently a bad person, and you get him or her somehow through some ruse, you get them doing Torah and mitzvot, it will affect the person and it will make the person into a better person, is what he's saying. Even not for the proper reasons, they will immediately become good. The potency of their actions will overcome their evil inclination. And here's his saying that he says a number of times in this book, For the mind always follows the action. What do we believe? What do we think? When you do something, you start to believe it. Let's just see the, uh, uh, let's just see some of his examples. Conversely, even people who are totally righteous, whose minds are honest and pure, who desire Torah and Mitzvot, if they constantly do things of foolishness. For example, if the king were to appoint them against their will to some evil office, You've got some kind of job that you don't want to do and you're forced to do something evil all the time. The, the, the king forces you to be a jailer and tells you to, uh, to uh, torture the prisoners or something like this. And you, uh, you're, or even, even if it isn't something as terrible as torture, but let's say give them only 800 calories a day of, uh, of food to eat. And you do this for a number of months or years, and you're, you're in charge of a bunch of people, and you're trying to keep them, in, uh, keep them in line, and all you're allowed to give them is 600 calories, 800 calories of food a day, and you're behaving in this cruel manner. You will turn, he says, into somebody cruel, because what you do will affect what you, because people tend to justify what they do. If you do something, you come to... It's not that we have certain... It's such an interesting conception of what it means to a human being, to be a human being. Because usually we like to think we have various values. Those values are inside of us, and our actions manifest our values. He says, no, that isn't the way it works. Your actions affect your values. They affect your soul. They affect your inside. And the Torah is a way of affecting the soul of the human being. And souls of human being don't learn all that quickly. And there are a bunch of teachers in this room here. The teachers know that you don't say something once. You tell the students what you're going to say, and then you say it. And then you tell your students what you said. You have to do it at least three times. And if the kids are younger, then you might have to do it more than that. Drilling, particularly in something like uh, mathematics or language, where there's something, uh, a skill that is to be acquired, you have to drill, you have to keep saying these things. Actions will affect the person. Let's just finish the text and then I'll take comments on this. For example, if the king were to appoint them against their will to some evil office, they would eventually abandon their inner righteousness and become totally evil. For it is a well-established truth that people are affected by their own actions, as we have said. Seven, that is why our rabbis of blessed memory said, God wanted to benefit the Jewish people, and for that reason he gave them much Torah and many mitzvot. He did that, the emphasis on much and many, Hirbalahem Torah u mitzvot a favor to do to the Jews. You might think, do you remember the ruse here was that it was beginning with the question, 
wouldn't it be enough to do one thing to remember the Exodus from Egypt? He said, no, it wouldn't be enough. God did us a favor because he's a good educator. He knows that he doesn't make the point once. He makes it a number of times because that's the way to affect us. He did that so that our thoughts would be occupied in that way and we would find all of our actions centered around them. This would be for our ultimate benefit for by doing good things we would be affected and we would be better, become better people worthy of eternal life. Accordingly, eight on page three, be very concerned about what your business and your work are. A lesson to us all. Try to go into an honest line of work. You will be affected by them and not the other way around. If you take a job that's shady, that's a, a shady kind of job and say, I am going to bring my great Jewish value system into this shady kind of work and everything will be fine because of that, don't think that's not going to work. It's going to be the other way around. You will be affected by them and not the other way around. Do not allow your mind to play tricks on you and say, since I have pure belief in God, what would be the problem if I were, here's the ruse of the son who's uh, uh, going off the derech a little, as they say in the yeshiva world. What would be the problem if I were from time to time to indulge in enjoyable human activities? What's he worried about his son doing? Sitting around the marketplace, cracking jokes with the jokers, and doing various other things that are not expressly forbidden. So he's not worried that his son is eating pork yet, uh, but he is worried that his son is spending too much time hanging out with the jokers in the, uh, in the marketplace. And he says to him, you know, if you hang out with the jokers, you become a joker. And that's what the Torah is about, according to Sefer HaChinuch. Sefer HaChinuch says the whole theory of mitzvot is to keep us busy doing things that are of value because then we will become people of, if you'll pardon me, if you do things of value, we'll become people of values uh, and you will, uh, you will inter eternal, internalize these things. Comments, please. Maybe it is. Yes. 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 Yeah. Generally, Jewish mysticism, you know, I, I don't reject your idea at all. And it, it might be, I don't know whether to call this rational or not, but that's the theme of today was supposed to be. We're supposed to be looking for rational explanations or not such rational explanations for the mitzvot. Okay, that, that word immediately is, is uh, I must admit, it's very difficult. But, but it, it is in the Hebrew, it's just for those of you who see the Hebrew. Um, but l let me just say something. Usually mysticism 
you'll hear more about mysticism in this afternoon's class, I think. But uh, usually mysticism is, understand, uh, is understood in Jewish circles as doing something that will be of much uh, m greater benefit than to myself. But, you know, that the world is being improved, that the Godhead in some way is being improved, that something is happening in the spiritual uh, realms of the world through something that I have done uh, in this physical world. That's how, that's how most Jewish mystics structure their mystery. And here, here is this, the argument that the human being learns in something that might not be seen as the most rational kind of way. But uh, let me give an, an example again of... Uh, of smoking. Uh, I'm a reformed smoker. I haven't had a, a cigarette for 21, 22 years uh, uh, now. So that's why, but uh, uh, it's a reason, it's something that comes to my, uh, to, to my mind uh, every once in a while because, you know, how did we actually cut down on the number, uh, the amount of smoking that takes place in uh, in North America? And we have cut down. I, I know the statistics in Canada. I know that uh, that 25 years ago, 31 percent of uh, adult Canadians smoked, and now it's 19. That's not bad to go from 31 percent to 19 percent in in 25 years, through zillions of dollars of bombarding of advertising messages. Uh, you know, it certainly wasn't Niyad. It certainly wasn't immediately, you know, but if you get involved, if there's this constant bombardment of messages, that's what I think he's saying. That people learn not from telling them once, remember the Exodus from Egypt, and they say, oh, okay, Exodus from Egypt. I got it, I'm going to remember it. But you have to bombard them with messages. That's the way in which human beings learn. So, I would agree with the assessment this might not be the most, uh, the greatest uh, understanding of human beings as rational creatures, but it, we, we learn from being bombarded by message after message after message. And that's how we manage to quit smoking or do anything important in our life, not from somebody telling us once to do something. And that's why the Torah does this. And if you get into this system, then this will get you out right away from the bad place where you are. But I agree with you. I have a lot of trouble with that word right away. funny, I did allude to that yesterday. I told the story that uh, when my son-in-law was studying in Israel recently, he phoned me up one day, went out on his porch, and he found a bird's nest with the mother sitting on the uh, birds there, and phoned me up to ask me whether there was a mitzvah for him to actually do something here, or, you know, uh, did he have to, to, to do this? And uh, uh, I told him that he didn't have to. Yes, you were going to say Consistently, right? Yes. Yes. Right. Right. Very good. Yes. Feel very embarrassed by 
Yes. Yes. Somebody yesterday, somebody who was sitting on this side of the room along the windows, it might have been you, asked the question yesterday whether whether it really works. Does it really work? All this. and I actually went out on a limb and I said that I do think that it does work. And uh, the, uh, the examples that you cite are troubling and we have to fight against them and they're embarrassing and you, we all want to hide our face in shame. And in Israel, uh, I sometimes joke with my wife when we're in Israel that I don't like buying the newspaper in Israel because almost every day there is a story of somebody religious uh, misbehaving and you just you, you just want to fall down into the floor and the, to to avoid having to read about it I still think you know you can call me uh, Pollyanna or whatever I still think that on balance uh, this is works very well and that the Jewish people the the great accomplishments of the Jewish people over the uh, over the years uh, I don't think that they're to be attributed to anything uh, racial or anything like this but to uh, to what Jews do and what Jews do that's different from from other people is the Torah uh, and I think that it's the it's the juxtaposition you know when you hear about somebody who isn't religious who got caught for fraud you know that happens all the time and and it's the troubling nature of somebody who's supposed to be living a life of morality and who isn't but i don't think that it's worse in religious circles than it is in other circles and i like to believe that it's better but um, i admit that i don't have uh, statistics uh, that uh, that uh, that prove this, um, but I'll, I'll tell you a story from a uh, a non-Jewish colleague of uh, of mine uh, at the university where I teach. He he began his life as a fundamentalist uh, Christian, and he is now he's a nothing uh, now. From uh, what was Woody Allen's line in uh, in Scoop? They said they asked him uh, what religion he was, and he said that he was born into the Hebrew persuasion. But uh, when he was a teenager, he converted to narcissism. Uh, <laughs> so really, great. So I, I wouldn't blame my non-Jewish colleague. Well, so I'm not telling you his name, so maybe I could call him a narcissist. But, <laughs> but uh, he's a wonderful man. Uh, but he has no nothing nice to say about any uh, about any religion in the world. And. Uh, I heard recently his brother-in-law, who was like 30 years old or something like this, died. And I was just talking with my friend about uh, how his sister was doing and now that uh, with, without her husband. And he said to me, you know, Marty, she's still in that fundamentalist community that I grew up in. And they take care of her. <laughs> he said, you know that I don't have anything nice to say about religion, but my sister has really benefited from the fact that she's in a religious community where they uh, it, no one is leaving her uh, to suffer uh, to suffer by herself because he said you know there are some advantages to religion this, this, uh, this narcissist uh, colleague of mine uh, 
we all know that there are things that go on, that the religion does cause human beings to, uh, you know, even seeing the, uh, the way in which people r rallied around uh, my daughter when she just had a baby in her, in her religious community, like for the first month of life, she didn't have to kick, uh, cook a meal. People in, uh, in, uh, in uh, the Jewish community there in Teaneck where she was living, everybody would bring, her a, bring a different meal over to the house for the first month of the... It's really nice. Uh, you know, I don't know that that happens in uh, in standard uh, non-religious uh, circles. Uh, pardon me. Oh yes, we. Uh, I, I agree. It's not just within our circles, uh, but yes, yes. That's right. Right. Very good. Very good. Right. Very good. I I entirely agree. So Sefer Achinuch is suggesting that in general mitzvot are serve as educational tools and that you can see from the repetition of mitzvot how educational they are because that's what education is all about it's about repetition it's about uh, finding new ways you know this is the lingo that all of us uh, uh, that all of us educators are being exposed to and some of uh, some of, uh, some are doing a better job than me of uh, doing it of finding different ways of teaching the same material to arrive at the same goal, re realizing that some people are oral learners and some people are tactile learners, the, the, the different styles that people have of, of learning. And so to know that there are some Jews who will be affected by eating matzah and others who will be affected by reclining at the Seder, it's all part of, I think it fits in quite well into modern educational theories about how people learn. Okay, I would like to, at the suggestion of uh, one of the people here today, I'd like to give us a like a five-minute break, and uh, then we'll reassemble here in five or ten five or ten minutes. Most of the rest of our session today will be dealing with understanding of one interesting mitzvah, uh, which is the mitzvah of. The Egla Arufa, the heifer with the broken neck. I already uh, apologized yesterday for the fact that it seems like I'm bringing so many texts that have to do with animals dying. And if there are any vegetarians here, I, I'm really, uh, it probably wasn't the nicest uh, choice. Um, let's read through the biblical text. It's on page three of your handout. Uh, I'll read it in English. Those of you who wish can follow along in the Hebrew. If a man is found slain, lying in a field in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, your elders and judges shall go out and measure the distance from the body to the neighboring towns. Then the elders of the town nearest the body should take a heifer that has never been worked and has never worn a yoke and lead her down to a valley that has not been plowed 
or planted, and where there is a flowing stream. There, in the valley, they are to break the heifer's neck. The priests, the sons of Levi, shall step forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and to pronounce blessings in the name of the Lord and to decide all cases of dispute and assault. Then all the elders of the town nearest the body shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall declare, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it done. Accept this atonement for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not hold your people guilty of the blood of an innocent, and the bloodshed will be atoned for. So you will purge from yourself the guilt of shedding innocent blood, done what is right in the eyes of the Lord. That's the whole text. It's a text that arguably you might say that this text provides a ta'am for the mitzvah, provides a reason that says why you're doing this. But it, it, it doesn't really explain how doing this ceremony, there's a goal that's, uh, that, that's been uh, described here in the text but it doesn't explain how the actions that are being done accomplish that goal. Um, without looking down, everybody look up from the text. What is the goal? Without reading the text, but just what do you think that the goal is of this text? Yes. Very good. Okay, so that's what the text says. The blood will be atoned for. Yes. Very nice point. That the people, the authority figures have to stand there and say, Yadeinu lo shafchu et adam hazeh. We didn't do it. We didn't see it. Now, in order for them to be able to do that, we will see, we're going to see some commentators coming up with it, and some of them focusing precisely on those words that you said there. That that's the real goal there, is to have them standing there saying that... Uh, and they can't say that unless they've done some investigation... In other words, there's this kind of feeling that we all should have this communal responsibility to be living in a city where bloodshed is taken seriously. And it's, uh, it's not enough to say that I'm not a murderer, but that if you live in a city and you have some kind of authority over the city and, and the city is structured in such a way that uh, murder does occasionally take place, You've got to do something about it. You can't just ignore it. We have this measurement ceremony in order to find out uh, what city is closest to this person who died. And, of course, that doesn't give us any certainty, but the odds are that the, it's more likely that, it came, that the murderer came from the closer town. Yes?
why would it have right ask the question, how do you measure? Do you measure from the nose? Do you measure from the, you know, uh, you know from what part of the body? You know, because there is something really irrational about this whole thing. And that, uh, but you, uh, I agree with you that collective responsibility seems to be the most important uh, point. Yes? Um, there's usually something about the family coming to avenge. Yes. 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 That's why we have the, we are, um, right. Very good. Very nice. Yes. Ah, very interesting. We're gonna get to that very soon. Okay. Okay. We're we're gonna see some commentators. So many of the things that you're saying you're gonna see in the commentators. It's nice to uh, elicit them from the group before we see what uh, people said in the middle ages. I get the impression that it was not done very often at all. And let me just read you a comment that Rashi makes uh, on it. It's not on the handout that you have here, but Rashi, uh, listen to what Rashi says on the verse, our hands did not spill this blood and uh, our eyes did not see. Rashi says, Did we really think that the, uh, that the uh, leaders of the court that the chief judges of the Jewish community there were murderers. You know, what does this mean to say we didn't commit this uh, this murder? Rashi says, Ella. Actually, what they are saying is, What the sages, uh, the elders of the town, are supposed to say is, we did not know about this guy, and we did not refused to give him charity and we did not turn him away from the town and in other words we don't have this social responsibility for the fact that he ended up being a murder victim. You know, Rashi, uh, the curious thing is Rashi took this whole thing and he kind of separated it from the, uh, the murder aspect and saying that a guy was killed outside of town. Now why was he why was he outside of town? Probably because he was wandering from town to town trying to get something to eat. So he, you know, he's trying to make it more relevant to the lives that we live where we bump into people all the time who are asking for tzedakah, who are asking for it to be sustained. They want the leaders of the town to say, they want them to stand up and say, we have a system, we have a safety net in our society. We have a way of taking care of the poor people in our society. That that's what this is going going for that's we want them to stand there and say we do take care of our poor people in our society so so curious Rashi has taken the ceremony I think that 
I don't think that Rashi represents the simple meaning of the biblical text. But it's a beautiful, again, as very often happens in Rashi, it's a beautiful idea that's being thrown in here, that we have the responsibility to be taking care of, uh, of people and not saying, uh, go somewhere else. Uh, yes. Yes, oh, for sure. Although we'll see another theory entirely about the measuring and everything very soon. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, it does limit the... You're absolutely right. Once we've decided that the body is closer to Toronto than to Buffalo, then the people in Buffalo don't have to worry about it. And they say, okay, the Torontonians will be taking care of this now. Yeah, that is an accomplishment. Right. A hundred percent. Very well said. Yes. Is Lota Amod al Damreha, do not stand idly by while something bad is happening to your neighbor. Yes, that is a mitzvah. Lota Amod al Damreha, for sure. And so that I think that this fits in beautifully with this theme that to some degree, we know we feel a certain responsibility here. Yes. Perfect question. Does this end the inquiry into the murder? I'm not going to answer it right away. What I am going to do is flip the page and ask everybody now I'm going to give you like uh, 10 minutes to read in Chavruta to read with partners if you could pair off into twos or threes and read through the text of Nachmanides 13th century Christian Spain text uh, 10, 11, 12 and 13 is Nachmanides comment on this text and he quotes two other theories on the subject Nachmanides quotes Ibn Ezra's theory on the subject and he also quotes Rambam's theory on the subject. And so you will, in reading one text here on page four, you will have three theories. Of, I didn't give you the original text from the Rambam, but uh, from Maimonides. But Nachmanides does a fine job of representing what he, he gives you a precy, an accurate precy of what Rambam had to say about the subject. So that's what we're going to do right now. Take, a, take ten minutes or so to read this in Chavruta, and then I'd like to talk with you about these three approaches that we have to this, uh, to this mitzvah.
Okay, everyone, uh, we've, seen, we've seen three explanations. I didn't want to say that much about Ibn Ezra's, uh, but, but if anybody has some comments, it is an interesting idea that uh, God would not have caused something bad to happen in my, in my city if we had been uh, good people. Is kind of the idea behind Ibn Ezra's, uh, you know, you ought you to think about it. If something terrible has happened in your city, it's because, uh, you know, the moral bar has not been set high, high enough in the city in which you live, is Ibn Ezra's idea. I don't know how many of us wish to be responsible for all of the behavior in the city in which, uh, in which we live, but that's uh, Ibn Ezra's suggestion. Why are these people doing this? Because... There must be something wrong with the morality of the, uh, the, the, the that they've been espousing in their town. Yes. yes, you were going to say something. 
you feel responsible. Yep. You know, a, a, uh, I never made Aliyah. I've always felt guilty about not making Aliyah. But one of the most impressive Zionist speeches I ever heard in my life that almost got me to make Aliyah was, uh, was one that uh, said that uh, the problem in, in Chutzlars is that we can walk out on the street here and we cannot feel responsible for something that's going on on the street here. And, you know, we see something terrible going on here that it's really easy for all of us to say, that's not us. Uh, and there's, some, there's something, a mugging going on or something like that. You know, I'm part of the little Jewish community where people, where there are no muggings, I hope, uh, where there's a, uh, a better kind of uh, moral... And, the the speech argued that it's too easy. Life in Chutzlaretz is too easy because you can just write off various social problems. And in Israel, if you believe in the Zionist idea, you can't write off those social problems. You have to... Uh, yep. So he's saying when you live somewhere, you feel responsibility for what's going on in that place. It's a, again, I'm not sure how many of us are comfortable or squirming when even Ezra tells us this, but that's what he says. Yes. Although arguably it's saying that guilt is hovering over us until we do something. Right. Right. That's what. It, that's what. I think that's what, how Ibn Ezra is uh, is understanding the text. Okay. I wanted to spend. Unless, please go ahead. About Darfur. Yes. So, you know, a a large problem in the. Uh, in the world, my uh, my youngest daughter is now a student in uh, in Israel, and there was a big uh, demonstration about Darfur in Jerusalem. And my, my daughter reported to me some of the discussions between the uh, people from outside of Israel and the people within Israel uh, about it. She said, first of all, she had found that a number of the Israelis hadn't even heard of Darfur, and that you know a whole bunch of uh, of the uh, uh, young women from Chutzlaretz went off to this demonstration. They slept along a few Israelis. She, she felt really, really interesting. But the, but she also said that they said, this Israeli friend said, so you know, so what did we do? So we went and we demonstrated to the streets of Jerusalem about a cause that's really far. This feeling, there is this feeling that we would like to be doing things about various problems in various places in the world and. Uh, I have a, you know, I have a brother-in-law and, and sister-in-law who uh, some of you might know uh, who went off to Rwanda this summer and actually did something uh, there. My sister-in-law is a midwife, and she went and she taught midwives in Rwanda how to uh, how to do midwifery in ways that they uh, they didn't know. They're a little bit behind uh, New York City in their practice of uh, midwifery and uh, so there are people who actually do go and uh, but, but it's so hard it's, so they spend 10 days in Rwanda solving in Kodesh, the 
problems of Rwanda of, by doing that, but go ahead. And it would be so nice if we could all find ways in which we could make a contribution that was as great as the, that, that contribution. And it's good for us to feel bad that we haven't found those ways yet, and we can continue, uh, continue looking. Uh, here are people who are being told to, hold, to consider themselves somewhat responsible for something that has gone on in their town and told to do something about it. But what they're doing doesn't seem to have any connection to the problem that existed. You know, if Rashi said that the problem is that the elders are actually saying it's not that we didn't uh, feed this guy, it's not that we didn't uh, protect him, you know, then the ceremony ought to be to set up a soup kitchen after it said more, uh, more ways of dealing with the poor people in town, but, but the ceremony seems extremely strange. So now I want to concentrate on the difference between Maimonides and Nachmanides in this text. We see Ibn Ezra's kind of introductory comment here. Would somebody like to try to characterize Maimonides' understanding of uh, the purpose of this ceremony? How, what, why did they do this ceremony according to Rambam, according to Maimonides? What does text 11 say? Very good. It is a way of causing the murderer to be found. I assume that crime stoppers, that's not just in uh, Canada, that's something here in the United States. You know, it's a way of uh, advertising crimes, getting people talking about crimes that have taken place in order that it might be possible to find uh, the perpetrator. Some people would argue that our media serve that purpose. That why is it important for the press to report about crime? Because it gets people talking about it. And if you are reading the New York Times and you read about something that took place on uh, 65th Street on the uh, west side yesterday, some kind of crime that took place there, and you were just there a few minutes before that, you might say, oh, you know, I saw that suspicious person. It, that is the theory that the press is there not just for prurient purposes so that we should be titillated by reading about various crimes that have taken place, but that there's something that is accomplished by having people talking about the crimes that take place. And there was no TV, no email, uh, and no, uh, no radio, and no newspapers in the days of the Torah or in the days of the Rambam. So what does Rambam say? This is a fascinating theory. How do you get people talking about it? Do a weird ceremony. Do something that people don't normally do. People don't normally take a heifer a good healthy heifer and break the, na uh, the back of her neck at a flowing river. And they don't usually drag out all of the town elders to go to the river with this heifer and break the back of her neck. Rambam is saying 
If you do something weird like that, you will get people talking about the crime. And why do you want people to talk about the crime? Because you want to solve the crime. The whole purpose of this ceremony is to solve the crime. And he says, notice that they say, if there's some kind of knowledge in quotation marks about who the murderer is, but uh, for some reason that person cannot be put on, uh, on trial, you don't do the ceremony. The whole ceremony says Rambam is only to try to get the uh, to get people talking about it, so that we might find the murderer. And it's it's very. Uh, uh, I found it interesting. Towards the end of eleven, the murderer would then be killed. This is the fourth last line of paragraph eleven in the English. By the court, or by the monarch or by the blood avenger. In other words, Rambam knows that there are many situations in which the Jewish court would not be able to take care of the, uh, according to Tahalacha, there are very rare situations when you would actually be able to put somebody to death in a Jewish court. But he says, you know, there's always the monarch around. And, uh, you know, Jewish communities often counted on, when Rambam lived in Spain and then uh, later on in his life when he moved to Egypt, I think that the Jewish communities there counted on the fact that the, as we count on the secular authorities, not on the rabbis to find the murderers if there's, God forbid, a murder in the Jewish community, we count on uh, New York's finest to, uh, to try to solve the, uh, the murderer and punish it. But in order to accomplish this, you have to have people talking about it. And really interesting theory. Uh, do any of you have any comments about his theory other than the comments of Ramban on the theory? Yes. Good. That's right. Very good. Very good. You know, uh, notice how Rambam did not talk about any of the details of the law. And remember that introduction that we saw yesterday where he said it's important to explain the idea behind every law, but details, details, shmitails. So, you know, and so they're doing this in a weird kind of way, uh, and there's nothing symbolic. Notice that, you know, you were taught, and I think we were all taught, that there has to be something symbolic involved in this ceremony, and he's not interested in symbolic uh, explanations. This is the, you know, uh, pouring water, you know, washing your hands of the, uh, again, most of us, with most of us, the idea of washing your hands of a crime resonates with the New Testament text, but that New Testament text is really resonating that the, uh, when Pontius Pilate washes his hands of the, uh, uh, in, couple of the Gospels, in Matthew and uh, more, than, uh, more than Matthew, washes his hands of responsibility for it. But that's just an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 21. That's where the, the, they are washing their hands of this, uh, uh, of this ceremony. They're removing the responsibility from themselves. That's symbolic. That's what you were taught. That's what I was taught. Rambam will have none of it. No symbolism. Yes. Mm-hmm. No one knew him. I mean, he isn't anybody. 
but we are doing something and we are actually so we're taking this man as a person and we're personalizing this one who really existed and deserves this thing done about himself, even if we didn't know. Right. But we are doing this, why? Because we feel that there's a certain responsibility upon us to uh, deal with blood guilt or something like that? Or is it because we want to find out the perpetrator? That's the, that's the real question here. Rambam says the only reason to do a ceremony after somebody dies is to find the murderer. That's what we want to do. We want to improve society by finding the murderer, not by doing a symbolic ceremony that is somehow going to mystically lift blood guilt uh, off of our community. What do you do when there's a murder? You try to find the murderer. That's what Rambam says. And that could be, that, that has to be the reason for the ceremony, to find the murderer. Right. 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 Very good. And I think that uh, if I could paraphrase, you're suggesting that the two explanations are not necessarily at odds with each other. They can both be true. The ceremony could be for uh, removal of blood guilt and for finding the murderer at the same time. Uh, but Rambam doesn't say that. He says that the purpose of it is to discover the murderer and avenge the murder. That's, that's the reason for it. Okay, now what does Ramban think about this? What does Nachmanides think about this explanation? Would um, someone like to summarize his, uh, his position? No, actually in, uh, in 12. He thinks it's... Yes, he, he does... Uh, uh, express himself not as strongly. Occasionally he does say nonsense about things that Rambam, uh, Rambam wrote. But just so you should know that during Nachmanides' life there was quite a controversy about whether the Guide of the Perplexed was a good uh, work for Jewish people to be reading or not. And there were various, uh, various uh, mystically inclined people who were saying that the Guide should be banned and nobody should be allowed to read it. And I mentioned yesterday that even there was a terrible incident about some copies of the Guide of Perplexed being burned in northern France. During Ramban's lifetime, Ramban was living in, in Christian Spain and then he moved to Israel towards the end of in the 1230s he moved to Israel uh, the Ramban synagogue in the old city of Jerusalem which really is at the site uh, there, there is some doubt about agriculture uh, about archaeological sites uh, that go back uh, 2,000 3,000 years but uh, those that go back 800 years there's, there's certainty that that's where uh, Ramban's uh, synagogue was established in the old city of Jerusalem. Um, Ramban had this ambivalent kind of idea, uh, attitude towards Rambam. He had more respect. He was not interested. He, he was considered a pro-Rambamist in the dispute about uh, whether it was good or bad for Jews to be reading, uh, reading the Rambam's great philosophical work. He said, it's fine. It's a good thing to do. 
but he disagrees with a lot of things there, which is, I think, a very uh, nice modern kind of attitude uh, where I disagree with a lot of things in this work, but it's still it's good that people should study, uh, should study this work. Um, and he doesn't say it quite in terms of being nonsense, but there is, uh, uh, I agree with you that that's the bottom line of what he's saying. When they get out after their uh, class, they have to be allowed to make some noise. Uh, I think the crucial line here is, the ceremony is then a ruse to accomplish a goal, but the actions themselves themselves serve no purpose. Yesh hazo to'elat, aval The ceremony is a ruse to accomplish a goal, but the actions themselves serve no purpose. And what do you think? Had Ramban been alive during Rambam's lifetime, and if he had turned to him and said, this ceremony is a ruse to accomplish a goal the way you've explained it, but the actions themselves serve no purpose, what do you think Rambam would have said if he had raised this objection to Rambam? What do you think Rambam would have said? They accomplish a goal. So he's kind of distinguishing between a goal and a purpose, which are almost the same thing as each other. He <coughs> yes, that's right. Um, there is something accomplished by this ceremony, but the individual actions do not accomplish anything. The whole ceremony accomplishes something. And in other words, I think that Ramban is saying, I'm speculating a bit, but let me try this out on you. I think Ramban's saying, this ceremony, uh, Rambam, Rambam hasn't really explained the ceremony. Because all he's saying is you have to make noise uh, about the murder to get people talking about it. And that could obviously be accomplished. There weren't any newspapers or radio, so what do you do? You have somebody walk through the town saying, a murder took place, we're trying to find the murder. There are other ways of getting people talking about the murder. And there is no reason that it has specifically to have been done in this way. And all that Rambam is saying is that they wanted to get people talking about the murder. Well, they could have done it in many different ways. And so there's nothing specific about this ceremony that is of any particular value. I think that that's what Ramban's objection is. And had Ramban been alive and and said that to the Rambam, what do you think Rambam, uh, Rambam would have said as an answer? Um, if he had said, you know, you're just saying that this ceremony was to get people talking about it. Well, there are other ways you get people talking about it. So the ceremony itself isn't of any uh, particular value. That's like the example that I gave a couple of hours ago when I said, the person who says, I don't want to like Hanukkah candles, I want to read the book of Maccabees. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to eat matzah on, uh, on Pesach. I'll read books of history and uh, I'll remember the exodus from Egypt uh, uh, that way. I don't want, yeah, I agree with you. I want people to talk about the murder, but I don't feel that I have to do this, uh, this ceremony. So what would a Rambam kind of reaction to this be? Are we saying by the question 
I am saying that the Rambam had no mystical bent whatsoever. Yes. And that the Ramban definitely had a very strong mystical bent. So that is uh, the, the uh, basis of my, uh, of my question. Yes? That's, how he, that's what he would have said. You're absolutely right. Right. That's what he would have said. That's how we do it. That's right. And he would have said, if you turn to Rambam and say, I don't want to eat matzah on the Seder night, but I want to spend my time studying history books about the exodus from Egypt. Won't that accomplish the same goal and maybe accomplish it better? Rambam would say, yes, it would accomplish the same goal. And in theory, uh, we might, uh, it, it might work better for you, but that's how we do it. We've got a community, we've got a religion, we've got a group, and this is the way that our group does this. And there, you're right, there are other ways that this could have been accomplished, and I don't care. I'm almost certain that's what Rahman would have said. That's the business about the details that we saw yesterday when he said, you'd say to me, why did they do it this way and they didn't do it that way? And I'd say to you, if they did it the other way, you would have said, why didn't they do it that way instead of doing it this way? I don't care about those things, says the Rambam, uh, because I just want you to know what they were trying to accomplish. Yes. Right? Right? I agree with you in your reading of the biblical text, but I don't think that Rambam has ignored that entirely. Rambam has ignored the aspect of the town. He just does not. He's, I think he's so uncomfortable with the idea of some kind of blood guilt hovering over this town. He's kind of thinking to himself, what did I do wrong? There was a murder here in the town. Why, why would I, as a, leader, as, a, uh, as a leader of this town, have to go through some kind of ceremony here with killing the neck of a heifer? I think that, you'll pardon me for saying this, but I think that on some level, Ramam is kind of embarrassed by this rule and says, this sounds like this mystical hocus-pocus kind of stuff that there's a murderer that takes place. So what do we do when there's a murderer? We kill a heifer. Come on, give me a break. What does that have to do with, with the kind of rational life that I, as a person who spent most, all of my life studying Gemara and studying Plato and Aristotle, why in the world would somebody like me think that there would be a good idea when a murder takes place in my town that the elders of the town should kill a heifer? And you want to say that there's something symbolic and it's, no, no, it's all just because it's good to find murderers and I think we could all accept the idea that it's good that murderers should not be walking the streets uh, freely because they might murder you or me uh, next and that's the only kind of explanation that the Rambam wants to provide for the text some of you I am guessing will be attracted by explanations of that nature and some of you will be repelled by Rambam's unwillingness to consider the symbolic and the mystical as a realm of explanation that could be meaningful for human beings. Give it a shot.
That's right. Yes. The, the details have reasons to them? I'm not sure that I agree that Rambam thinks that way. I don't mind that approach, but I just don't think that Rambam works that way. I think that, you know, getting back to Rambam's ruse in his writing of The Guide of the Perplexed, that he's writing to one student, he's writing for Yosef Ibn Aknin, he's writing for this guy who's confused between the t- tensions between philosophy and halakha. And he's worried that Yosef Ibn Aknin might make one of, uh, uh, of a number of kinds of errors. One of the possible errors that he could make would be to assume that there is that the laws of the Torah have nothing rational about them and he doesn't want Yosef Ibn Aknin buying into another kind of uh, I'm saying something radical here anybody want to shoot me down you can go ahead he doesn't want Yosef Ibn Aknin plugging himself into another system of truth other than rationalism and he's arguing that the Torah is rational too he is not interested in him walking around and saying you know, there's rational inquiry that you find in Plato and Aristotle, and there's the Torah, which brings us to some kind of symbolic, mystical other realm. He doesn't want him to do that. And that could be... Yosef Ibn Aknin, or you or I, uh, who are also the readers of Rambam's work, could make that mistake in two ways. One, by saying the rules have no meaning to them at all. They're just part of some divine system that we can't understand at all, and I'm going to do these things, uh, and I'm going to spend a lot of my life dealing with something that has nothing to do with rationalism. Rambam says, don't go there. There's the other place that he doesn't want you to go is into a system that's going to explain to you every one of the details because it's going to be impossible to explain every one of the details without going to the super-rational, to the irrational, or to the mystical. And again, he's saying to you and to me, don't go there. He doesn't want us to go to that kind of system, so I don't think that he feels that there are explanations ultimately for all of these details. And Nachmanides says, I want to go there. Ram- Nachmanides says, and this is kind of a lead-in to the, what you'll be studying this afternoon in, uh, in this week, which is the uh, theories of the Jewish mystics that will explain the mitzvot as having something to do with a realm other than the rational. But that's not Rambam. That's not what Rambam wants you to go, where Rambam wants you to go. Yes. Very good examples. People who, people who have said, you know, bar mitzvah didn't make any sense. We we should do it in a more sensible way. We'll have confirmation at age uh, 16. And 
for various reasons, and even in most reform circles, it's almost it's extremely rare to find a reform circle where there isn't uh, where there isn't bar mitzvah these days. Although, you know, when I was a kid, it was common that reform circles that it did not yet right. I, I would probably say that that's how you do it. That's how we do it. Works a lot of the time. It doesn't work all the because there are changes that do occur as uh, as time goes on. But but in so here's you know there's a ceremony. You could do it a different way. That's right. You could do it a different way. Rambam would say, uh, I'm not going to second-guess the Torah. That's what he said. I'm not going to second-guess the Torah. Why on a certain day it said to bring a lamb as a sacrifice and another day it said to bring a goat as a sacrifice. Give me a break. I'm not, and so you're asking me, why is this ceremony done at a field that hasn't been, uh, that, that hasn't been worked? Rambam says it would attract more attention if you actually went to a place where people were working doesn't make any sense but he, Ramban is saying there's symbolism here you know there's land that is not producing anything here's this dead guy he's not going to produce anything there's blood there's, there's flowing water but there's land that isn't, being, that isn't producing anything you know, this, uh, if you're into these kinds of explanations as Ramban certainly is then this is ripe with symbolic explanation but Rambam doesn't like symbolic explanation. I'm going to say something back there, please. Four. Pshat, uh, Remez, Drash, and Sod. Yes. Ramban, Nachmanides. Yes. Rambam, we yes. I would agree with you entirely. And in fact, Rambam reinterpreted the word pardes in a way that is not consistent with your explanation of the word pardes. The pardes comes from the same Persian word that uh, the English word paradise comes from. Uh, and pardes in Hebrew means a, an orchard but at one point in medieval times people started talking about how interpretation of texts for us Jews is to be seen as a form of pardes and there are four kinds of interpretation we have pshat, the plain meaning of the text remez, hints in the text drash, meaning midrash uh, uh, Terrible kind of explanations or things like that, and so are mystical kinds of explanations. Rambam does not buy. It. Rambam never talks about pardes in those terms. There's a very strange passage in the Babylonian Talmud that talks about four rabbis who entered into pardes, and uh, it's usually interpreted, including by Ramban, but most people in uh, in, in the theory in in circles of Jewish thought interpreted entering pardes meaning getting involved in mystical speculation about the Torah and it says that of those four rabbis one of them became a heretic one of them that was Elisha ben Avuya one of them committed suicide uh, one of them uh, pardon me one became crazy. Very good. One went crazy. One committed suicide. 
one became a heretic, and one of them, Rabbi Akiva, nichnas b'shalom v'yatsa b'shalom. He came in being of sound mind, and he left the study of Pardes being of sound mind and of uh, proper Jewish uh, uh, behavior. I have a friend who used to teach at the school in Jerusalem named Pardes that I'm sure that uh, some of you have heard of, a wonderful school. He used to say jokingly that the motto of our school is if one out of four students <laughs> will be happy. Well, well, that's a, yes, a, yes, a, you know, the, yes, they don't put it, no, you know, yes. Don't ever quote that to any of the people who are the, the uh, big shots at, at Pardes. And you know, that's one of the big differences between teaching at the uh, lower levels and teaching at the uh, at the higher levels uh, and I always feel for elementary school teachers who you know if you teach a class at the university at, at an elementary school you're teaching teaching people how to read and uh, 27 out of 28 students uh, figure it out and one of them uh, does not figure out how to read you're not considered to have done a successful job and at the university, if I, I taught a course this last semester, and at the end of the semester, there were a couple of people who, in the class who, you know, passed. They did not work to pass. But I, you know, sitting looking at their work, I said to myself, I don't think they got it. You know, I, I don't really think that they understood this. And I, uh, unfortunately, the structure of universities is such that uh, you're not supposed to see yourself as a failure if, uh, if a couple of students in the class didn't really get what was uh, going on. There's an assumption that some people won't get it. But you're usually aiming for more than one out of four to... Uh, to, to, to oh, just back to Rambam and Pardes. Rambam says that Pardes means philosophical speculation. That that Talmudic text doesn't mean four people started studying mysticism. It means that four people started studying philosophy. And what was the problem? Why isn't Rambam in favor of philosophical, uh, philosophical speculation? He is, but it has to be done according to proper procedures. And you are not allowed to study the metaphysics. Philosophy is called metaphysics until you have mastered the physics. You have to understand how this world works on a biology and physics uh, kind of basis. I always feel guilty because my, you know, the last time I took a science course, was in uh, was in my junior year of high school. Uh, I did take one. I did the the university I went to forced you to take one science course, and I copped out by taking a philosophy of science course. That was all. That was really a philosophy, uh, a, a philosophy course. But uh, Rambam would be very upset with the education from a philosophical perspective. He would be be very upset with the philosophical education that I got because he says that philosophy is only studied after you've gone through those steps. And so Rambam. There's this shunting shunt, uh, aside of the mystical tradition. You know, that he just doesn't talk about it. He alludes to it every once in a while. And I think when he's talking about people who provide those explanations, why a ram here and why a lamb there, he's talking about the mystics. And he doesn't like where they're going and he doesn't want you going there. And Ramban does want you going there. Ramban says that ultimately you're going to end up with this kind of utilitarian idea of the Torah that it just serves various uh, purposes, that the, that the Torah just dreamed up a ceremony here, and the purpose of the ceremony is to get people talking about a murder that took place, and that's all that they want. He, he does not like that. He wants the symbolism, he wants the meaning, and 
I, again, I, you know, I'm not asking for a vote in this room, but I, I bet you that in this room there are some people who are more attracted to a Rambam kind of approach, and I bet you that there are some people who are more attracted to a Nachmanides kind of approach. Yes. Oh, I think that Nachmanides thinks that the particulars have a reason and that the reason can be explained only in a mystical text. And, yes, it, it, because oh, uh, yesterday I explained that I don't think that the word chukim means a law that has no explanation. I think that chukim, chok, uh, means a law in which it is difficult to know the explanation. A law where at first glance there is no explanation and Rambam says this very clearly that every chok does have it. then he says the details don't have any explanation but Rambam says it clearly and I think that Nachmanides feels the same way it's saying these are, chok means that there isn't a simple explanation that's staring us in the face but of course there is an explanation and in the text that I didn't get to yesterday at the end of yesterday's class Ramban says it also explicitly that everything has an explanation some explanations we know and some of them we don't know until we've studied mysticism and then we will know more and more of these explanations so I, I, I thank you for pointing that out and uh, get a chance to review what we said about Kukim yes Please. Yes. Very good. That's another explanation of the word chok, that it means a law that human beings would not have come up uh, with on their own because it isn't of a rational nature. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a reason to it. It means it doesn't have a rational reason to it. And I think Ramban would go along with that and say, all of these details here, they all have a reason to them, but the reason is not to be found through Maimonidean rationalism or any other form of rationalism. They're to be found through a symbolic mystical kind of system that Ramban was one of the first authors who uh, wrote about but he wrote about it in a hinting kind of manner it was back in the days uh, when it was felt that to write about anything mystical in an open manner was not uh, was not permissible and uh, Ramban writes in the introduction to his Torah commentary uh, you know I quoted before what Nechama Leibovitch said that when she got to the line that said there's the mystical explanation Ramban, uh, she stopped reading <laughs> Ramban writes in the introduction to his Torah commentary if you have not been trained in mysticism and you are reading one of my mystical explanations of a text and you think that you understand it forget about it you don't unless you've gone through those steps of mystical training this is here for the people who have gone through the steps of mystical training and then you'll be able to understand what I'm saying about a specific mitzvah or a specific verse about what the mystical message of it is but if you don't understand the system don't go there uh, do not try this on your own that's right you said the commercial that's right the 
when you start to look into all these philosophies, how you can see where philosophy is so complicated because of these children or these children who have to hear all these different philosophies, and then I bring in this Jewish philosophy, and they why is this? Yep. Yep. Right. And I think that this uh, this kind of approach is uh, the the kind of objection that you're raising is most more easily raised about the Rambam than about Nachmanides because the Nachmanides system there's some mystical world out there that is a unique kind of system. But Rambam is trying to say, you know, all we're trying to do is solve a murder. And you got a better way to solve a murder than uh, than you might say. Okay, the system isn't all that uh, all that wonderful. We're going to talk about that more tomorrow. Please. I think the Ramban would have said, yes. He may have a point. He may have destroyed the Rambam. Well, I think that the Rambam would have come up with an answer uh, uh, to that. Uh, but I think you are right that that is what Ramban would have said to Rambam had they. Uh, their, their lives did overlap for a very. You know, uh, Ramban was uh, was a kid when uh, when Rambam died, but uh, they did not meet, and they you know they didn't live anywhere near. Uh, uh, near each other. Uh, okay, uh, we will continue tomorrow and